This is Yudaha Kohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you're listening to the Next Stage Podcast. I'm sitting here in southern Judea, somewhere between Hebron and the Dead Sea, with one of my close friends and uh, somebody I learn a lot from, Gavriel Ris. We're actually not in a yeshuv anywhere. We're not inside a Jewish town or village or city. We're actually just out there in the southern West Bank, between Yeshuvim, looking out towards the mountains of uh, Moab. Gavriel, say hello. Hello, hello. Okay, Israel has been at war now since the massacre that took place on Simchat Torah, and I came all the way down here to have this conversation with Gavriel about not just what's happening in the country right now, but what's been happening in the country for the last year, and how this current war seems to have changed things. What do you think? Well, I think it's clear that uh, this was just such a traumatic event that took place. Um, there were people that were warning that something like this was possible, and there were people who didn't believe in their wildest nightmares that something like this could take place. And I think the shock and the trauma uh, that the country has gone through since the details started to become clear, it was on Shabbat, Simchat Torah, Shmini Atzeret, I remember even, you know, uh, I, I got messages and and people thought there was some horrible event that took place. Uh, a group of terrorists crossed the border. Maybe there were 20, 30 people dead and uh, that I should be on guard because something's happening. I tried as much as possible during that same Shabbat not to open up the media, you know, despite the temptation, but I did what was necessary to protect myself, protect my farm, my family. Uh, and as the details started to become clear, um, obviously uh, there's no words for the devastation that took place. Um, and uh, the, this, the, I mean, if we put things in perspective, like huge events that took place to the Jewish people, we're talking about things like the Kishinev pogrom or uh, Kristallnacht, you know, things that are ebbed into our memory of horrible events that took place to our people. And th this is just, the numbers are so high. And the pictures of having our women dragged off, I mean, these are biblical pictures. These are pictures that you imagine when you think of the war against the Midianites in the book of uh, Shoftim. Uh, you think of, uh, of the wars in ancient Israel. And people woke up and, and suddenly realized, wait a second, this is our reality, and what does that mean? And this raised a lot of questions, raised a lot of questions, and uh, it's very interesting to talk to people to see how their perspectives are changing, uh, and I guess that's what we'll talk about. Yeah, so I think for a certain sector of the Israeli population, this has not been a shock. I think there is a certain sector of Israeli society, I think where I live and perhaps around where you live, where this is just what people understand our reality to be, um, to a certain extent. I think there was a little bit of uh, complacency and people were getting soft over the years, even Jews living in Samaria and Judea. But I think for a certain part of Israeli society, the part that had bought into the illusion, bought into the fantasy that Israel could be a quote-unquote normal country, that like the Yeshatid party likes to say, we could be like Sweden, I think it was like they were kicked in the head the Western conceptions of man were kicked in the head. I mean, there's a difficulty in Western American, uh, in the Anglo-Saxon world, to understand uh, really that the man, when they see man, 
with a capital M, what they're conceiving of is not really what man really is. Western society is very individualistic. Uh, there's the American dream, you know, to have a white picket fence, send your kids to a good college. All people really want is to have, um, you know, a good life, uh, make money, uh, live the good life. Uh, in fact, like American foreign policy is based upon that idea that we can, there are those who have seen the light and already are good Americans and those who have not yet seen the light and will make them into good Americans by feeding them NBA basketball and uh, Nike shoes. Okay, uh, and the reality is is that man is something much much broader. Uh, there are people who are willing to live and fight and die and kill for things that they believe in, uh, and sometimes those are good things and sometimes those are horrible things. But that's what we're up against. In other words, when I say up against, that's that's who we are as well. And so it's because I can identify those things inside myself, and I think that the Jewish public that's a, let's say, a, a public that has emuna, that believes in, in Jewish history, that believes in Jewish aspirations, believes in something bigger than themselves, that they see themselves as one small piece of a larger puzzle, and they're willing to sacrifice for that larger puzzle. It's easier for them to see that there are those who, when they say we want to, I don't know, for example, wage holy war against the Jews, and to kill and die for that holy war, like that they mean it. They mean it because I can identify those ideas and thoughts inside myself and that's okay and those things that are not foreign to me the way that they're foreign to the formators of, of western diplomacy western political science and so forth um right it it yeah. challenges liberal ideology and when i say liberal ideology i don't just mean liberal as opposed to conservative but i mean like liberal ideology that includes conservative within it this idea of humanity that came out of uh, the french revolution etc Right, and so it, it's a challenge to that perspective. It's a challenge to that perspective. It's a challenge because, first and foremost, because if you don't understand it, then you cannot defeat it. And the danger that we're actually facing right now, what, what I thought was when this war broke out, is that I heard people speaking and I, I suddenly saw people starting to understand that there is a different type of man out there that, that we're fighting against. Even people who are, who, are, who are totally inundated by this, by kind of like liberal progressive ideas, um, the only thing that I would say about Yeshatid and Lapid and so forth, um, there is a place for those ideas. I think there is a place for those ideas. They just can't be the leading ideas. Like there are good things there. It's like you know we talk about when when um, when the Jewish people left Egypt, we left with with all the gold of Egypt. Like every time we left Galut, every time we left exile, we took the treasures of the exile with us. We took the gold of of Egypt, and and what happened to that gold? Some of the gold went to building the golden calf, and some of the gold went to building the Mishkan, the tabernacle. And that's the clarification process that we're in. And so the same thing with Western society, Western civilization, which has many, many great things in it, has much, much gold. Some of that gold goes to the golden calf, and some of that gold is going to go to the building of the tabernacle. And so we can't totally deny the valid aspects of liberal progressive ideologies and Western civilization and so forth. But what history is making us do as a Jewish people is we're at the forefront now of this clash of, of, of civilizations, as it were. And we have to be able to use this as a, as a jumping point to create something that's totally new. To create something that's totally new that the world hasn't seen before. And that something new has to incorporate the greatest ideas, both of Western civilization and of Islamic civilization. And in order to help Islamic civilization, we're going to have to understand it. 
and we're gonna have to understand within ourselves and we have to be able to understand western civilization as well and that's in fact why the jewish people uh, you know the western world goes according to the sun and the the islamic world goes according to the moon and the jewish people go according to the sun and the moon so the, the danger is that there's a clash between the West and, and Islam. And the question is, are we the pawn in the hands of the West to batter Islam? Or are we actually an independent entity that's going to be able to rise up above these two ideas and to unite them uh, into a greater whole? Well, if we're interested in being an independent entity, I think the first step is really understanding ourselves and our ambitions, our goals. Uh, the problem is we as a society don't know what we want, don't know who we are. Uh, I'm interested in being a subject, not an object here, meaning, okay, an object got hurt, wants to hurt back. I get it. Like a lot of people, a lot of people in this country want revenge. And I can understand that. I can identify with it. There's even a mitzvah to take revenge uh, in certain situations. And I think the massacre that, that took place on Simchat Torah definitely counts as a situation in which we're obligated to take revenge. But okay, we took it. We hurt a lot of people. And uh, what do we want? I'm not interested in being a pawn on the chessboard. I want to be a player. I want to know what our interests are, what our goals are, what our objectives are and figure out, you know, everybody likes to complain about this one's agenda and that one's agenda, right? You hear everybody uh, is suspicious of, well, what's Iran's agenda here? What's America's agenda here? What's Russia's agenda? What's China's agenda? I want to know what is our agenda. Right. And the problem is Israeli society, regardless of whether we're talking about uh, Benny Gantz or Yair Lapid or Bibi Netanyahu, no one is speaking about Israel's agenda. What is our agenda? What are our interests here? What are our objectives? Right. Right. In lack of an agenda, what we want is peace and quiet. And when you want peace and quiet, you don't get peace and quiet. So I agree with you. I agree with you. I think we're going through a process right now of, first of all, like I said, understanding that there is different types of man out there, number one. Number two, I think that the huge divisions that we had within this country, we became united out of, out of this, this traumatic experience. Uh, and we see tremendous heroism and unity among the, the Jewish people here. Uh, it's something that we haven't seen for a long time, and I don't know if we've ever seen it. I, I mean, the, the, the power that we see of the unity of, of what's happening. You know, I, I'll give you an example. One of the, when we talk about an agenda, uh, uh, I mean, we can talk about political goals, but we can also talk about ideas. And one of the ideas that I, that I, so I brought up to you, you know, the, the, uh, I heard someone say, I think it was Rav Steinzeltz, uh, that, he, that he said, the French Revolution uh, was based on three ideas, equality, liberty, and fraternity. And, uh, and he said, okay, we tried, uh, equality was tried by the communists. Liberty was tried by the Americans. But brotherhood, Real brotherhood, have we, ever really, have we ever really tried that? Have we ever built a society that's built on real brotherhood? And, and the advantage of brotherhood, which Achva in Hebrew, first of all, I think that that's really like when we talk about the, the Sefer Bereshit, the book of Bereshit, that's how it begins with Cain and Abel, right? Two brothers. That's the beginning of the story. That's the beginning of the story. Two brothers that kill each other. One kills the other. And we end Bereshit with also a battle between brothers, Joseph and his brother, Joseph and his, uh, his brothers, but the unity of the brothers at the end. And we see throughout Sefer Bereshit this, this kind of um, theme. evolution and theme of can we live together as brothers? And why is this such an important thing? Because what is brotherly love? Brotherly love is, uh, number one, acceptance of the different, 
being able to accept someone who's really different because if he's your brother, it's, it's, not, it's not equality, it's not liberty. It's someone that's totally different, but you can still hold on to him and, and learn from him and love him, number one. Uh, number two, it also implies there are some who are closer and some who are farther, like this is my brother and the other one is not my brother. In other words, there can be a definition of, of closeness, uh, which I think is also uh, important. And I think that that is the society that we're going to have to be able to build. We're going to have to build a society built on, on brotherhood, brotherhood of the Jewish people, of the different tribes of the Jewish people, as opposed to the idea of liberty, for example. Liberty implies that, Magieli, like I deserve something, I have rights. Well, when you're talking about rights, when you're talking about rights, I deserve to have A, B, and C. Um, it's the exact opposite of what we talk about in Hebrew when we talk about schut. Schut is like when we talk about schut avot, we're talking about the fact that someone did fulfilled all of their obligations and more and now they get they have a bonus that's a schut in hebrew in the hebrew language but uh, the western world united nations the, is based upon the idea of human rights what did you have to do you're right nothing you don't have to do anything to get your right but it's backwards i think that our tradition our civilization teaches about obligation like it's not that i have a right to life it's i have an obligation not to hurt someone else that's my obligation. And perhaps an obligation to use the life that you've been given to do something meaningful in the world. That's also true, very very true. So we have to have a new message of not the you know human rights, but human obligations. That fits together also with the idea of brotherhood. If I have a brother, I have an obligation to help him. I have an obligation to help him. And one of the problems that we're going to have when we're talking about an agenda is that, and this is the great question, number one, is how are we going to unite the different tribes of Israel? that's happened right now that's starting to happen but we also have to be able to have a definition of what it means for the other who's not non-jew to be our brother as well if you do this you're our brother if you do this you're not our brother and those are the lines that are going to have to be drawn mm -hmm. yeah i would say look we, we spent about 10 months in this country fighting between ourselves over the identity of this nation like, what is Israel going to be? That's what the fight was about. The fight wasn't really about judicial reform. The fight was about the identity of the country and where it's headed. Uh, after 10 months of fighting over identity, we went to war. You know, Rav Kook teaches in the Orot Milchama that when nations go to war, their identity is clarified. Any nation, Ukraine and Russia, America and Afghanistan, right? Their, their identities are sharpened, clarified when they go to war. Right now, we're at war. And our identity has been clarified. There's something, the, the collective soul is shining through the people of Israel. But I am concerned for what happens when the war ends. Will we just go back to the fractures of a couple of weeks ago? Or do you think we've already transcended that permanently? No, I, I think we're in a process. I think we're in a process. And uh, and when things become clarified, there's ups and downs and ups and downs and ups and downs. In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. What is that? It's perfect. If you stop the the Sefer Bereshit there, it's perfect. God created the heavens and the earth. End of the story. It's perfect. Well, it's like that. Everything falls. Then the land is is, is, is and vo. How do you say that? Uh, void and chaos, chaos and void or whatever. And then slowly, slowly, it starts to be built up again. And there's light. Okay, day one. And then there's something else. Day two. Then more. Day three. And there's a slow ascension that's taking place. And there's more falls. And there's ascensions, and there's falls, and there's ascensions, and there's falls, and there's ascensions. And that is the nature of our reality. Every moment that something great is shining through, even if that, that light disappears afterwards, it leaves a mark. 
it leaves a memory. It's an impression. A, it's an impression. It's called in the in the Torah it's called the Rashimu. Like a, 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 it, it, there's something that is not erased. Okay, and that faint remnant becomes the building block of the next step up. Mm -hmm. So where are we right now? Like obviously we'd all want to be as to be ascending as much as possible, and I think we could. I think that every one of us has to be able to know exactly and be very exact about what his role is and what he can do uh, or what he can do and what he should do and what he shouldn't do uh, in order to advance these things together. But at the same time, I think we are in a process. I mean, there's no end game around the corner. Where are we going? In my opinion, I think where we have to be directed to is we have to be able to understand that as great as the state of Israel is, and I, and I, I think it is great, okay? Um, in my opinion, real change will not take place through the political system that exists. No matter how many people vote for whatever party you think is the right party uh, and however much power they, you think that they're going to have. First of all, we saw in the last year that, that the democratic system doesn't work, okay? In other words, like you can vote for a party, but they don't really have power because there's what's called, people, some people call it the deep state. There's a, elites. There's different uh, conceptions uh, 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 that people have. Um, we have a situation where the judicial system, most of the money in the country, the security forces, academia, the media are really all in the hands of a group that thinks a certain way. And no matter uh, who the people elect, those are the people who really set the agenda. Right. And that's the case. But beyond that, what has to take place, what has to take place now is what we would call, I would call a change in the regime, okay? The efforts that people want to, that should be directed now are not to get a specific political party into power or to pass certain laws that would limit those elites that you mentioned uh, because you think they're wrong or they're right. And by the way, I think that there's they have a lot of right things as well. Like, in other words, they have to be incorporated into this brotherhood that we're going to create. But what has to, what has to come forth is the state of Israel, yes, a different type of regime with different ideas and that's not through getting more people to vote for the political party that you think is the right one because the political system the way it's built today is not compatible to the Jewish soul okay in what sense it's not compatible to the Jewish soul in the sense that um, we send people to go and battle over a pie okay and there's a pie it's like the budget and each group wants to take as big a piece of, of the of the pie as possible. In other words, it's built upon the idea of uh, what the Baal Solomon would call a uh, like the, the desire to take for yourself, egocentricity, uh, that the Haredim want to take the biggest piece of the pie for themselves, the Tatilumi want to take the biggest piece of the pie for themselves, the Kibbutznikim want to take the biggest piece of the pie for themselves, and they're all fighting over a pie, and they rip it apart. And it's based upon the opposite of what should, what should be, which is altruism, which is the desire to give and so we have a system that's built upon this idea, like, in, and we have the epithet of the West, which is this is the least of all evils. Like, okay, it's not a good system, but it's the least bad system, which is a cop-out, which is antithetical to the Jewish idea, which believes in divine providence guiding our lives, guiding our history, and that there's, there is an end game, as it were, maybe a continuous end game, but there is something that we can aspire to that's greater and better than what we have today. The Jewish people, when we to, to be who we are, we have to be able to, number one, to understand that we can reach a higher level than America and Great Britain and France and Iran and China. We have to be who we are 
and we have to create a new model, a new model of society that's greater than uh, what we see in these other places by using these other places. And that's why I would say that there's 70 nations of the world, but we're also a nation that is not counted among those 70 nations. We're nation number 71. 70 primordial nations, not 70 flags of the UN. Correct, correct. It's a, how do you call it? It's a... Um, metaphor? It's like, a, yeah, a metaphor for, for the multiplicity of all the nations. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Manitou said, we say, like, who chose us from all the nations, and we say, who chose us from all the nations, in other words, not that he chose us as being better than all the nations, but he chose a little piece of all the nations and put it together in a puzzle and made Israel. Like, if you took all the nations together, put them into a blender, mix them up, you get Israel. Right, right and, and that might be why the Torah tells us that when we went to Egypt, when the family of Yaakov, the family of Israel went to Egypt, we were 70 people going to Egypt, corresponding to the 70 primordial national identities that were in the world before we came into it. Right, and that's what actually comes out in this week's Torah portion, the Migdal Bavel, right, this week, I'm not mistaken. Pashat Noach. Pashat Noach, that the people, they were all about uniformity. We're going to build one tower, and we're all speaking the same language, and we're all going to be uh, good Americans, as it were, or whatever the height of civilization is, is at the moment. Mm-hmm. We're all going to be one, and... and and Hashem breaks it apart and says, no, the correction of the Migdal Bavel is unity, but not uniformity. These different nations of the world have to be able to come together, have to be able to come together as one large family. And it's the role of the Jewish people. That was actually the role of Abraham Avinu, that to put these pieces back together. That was his role. Mm-hmm. In fact, that's why all the Midrashim, even though chronologically it doesn't work, but all the Midrashim put him on the background of Migdal Bavel. He's the correction of Mikdal Bavel. He's the correction of the Tower of Babylon, um, uh, the breaking apart of all of humanity and putting them together. The idea of lechot to put everything together in uh, in the type of brotherhood. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, just out of curiosity, because you said that the the liberal components of Israeli society, what we'll call Yosef, the the part of Israeli society that really uh, sees the dominant civilization of any given period as like the civilization to connect to and emulate. Um, you, you said there are some positive qualities there. I agree with you. There are some positive qualities there. I don't think they should be the glue that holds Israeli society together, and I don't think they should be driving the country. Uh, but there's some positive there, and I want you to clarify maybe what you mean Specifically, what values do they bring to the table, do they bring to the nation, that make us more what we're supposed to be? Well, I mean, the, the power of Yosef, the power of Yosef is the power, that, you know, it says when, when Yaakov was in exile in uh, Lavan's house, um, when did he decide to come back? When Yosef is when born. When Yosef is born. Was Yosef in Gematria? Tzion. Mm-hmm. Right? And that's the time he's... And it says, Rashi says that, that in the, to the Midrash, Yosef is the one who can defeat Esau. Mm-hmm. He's the one who can stand up against Edom and Esau because he has the he has the power of Edom and Esau. And that's, in fact, uh, uh, what I think uh, that we, we saw. In other words, Edom is the idea of Western civilization civilization in the sense of of Rome, of Mm -hmm. politics, of the supremacy of formal judicial uh, uh, structures, the ability to have international relations, the ability to have uh, infrastructure, roads, like these are the things we find in in Rome. It's like the height of Western civilization. And Yosef also had those attributes, as it were. Uh, and we see when he went down to Egypt and he, he looked like an Egyptian, he talked like an Egyptian and he, he controlled the economy of Egypt and he tried to do his reform, he tried to do his tikkun olam as it were 
through those uh, pipelines inside of Egypt. Okay, and so that's what, like, if we take the power of Yosef here uh, as well, and, and by the way, he was the, the great, like, I mean, Yoshua ben Nun, he was from the Shevet of Ephraim, and he, he's the one who led the conquest of mm -hmm. the land of Israel. Well, what's unique about Yoshua, I think, is that uh, even though, yes, he's from Yosef and has the talents and the attributes of Yosef, um, he really subordinated himself to the Torah of Levi. He was a student of Moshe. And I think that uh, for Yosef to really play its role as we've seen it played best historically, Yosef needs to accept upon itself, if not the Torah of Levi, the Torah of Yehuda. Right. That's the uh, tshuva that Yosef does. Is Before he dies, he says, you know what, I tried to do tikkun olam here in, through external sources, through Egypt. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's I was thrown into Egypt and I thought that was what God wanted from me and, and uh, that's what I did here. But in the end of his life, what's the last thing he says? And bring up my bones to, to the land of Israel. In other words, I realize that there's another plan and I subordinate myself to that other plan. That other plan being the plan, the leadership of uh, Yehuda. Uh, and uh, that's the, the indeed the, the place we're at now. I mean, Yehuda has to do his tshuva. And Yosef has to do his repentance, <clears throat> and in fact, that's the 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 story that's told in the Gemara about Jerovam uh, Nevat, right? And uh, from the tribe of Ephraim, from the tribe of which Ephraim, is a sub-tribe of Yosef. He breaks away from the kingship of uh, King you... Solomon of uh, Shlomo Melech uh, after his son Jerovam, and and the story is that Hashem says to him, "Come with me, and me and you and mm. the son of David will walk together in the Gan Eden." And the question he says is, but who's going to be in the head? Who's going to be first? And he says, Ben Yishai. And he says, I'm out of it. I don't want it. Okay, so that's the tshuva that has to happen with Yosef. In other words, Yosef is the most powerful tribe in, in Israel. In terms of the material world. In terms of the material and, and other things as well. I mean, we could go into like also the Kabbalistic ideas of what Yosef represents in, in the Torah Sod, which is the Yesod, mm -hmm. which is the uh, part that connects between the upper the upper Sfiwot and uh, and Malchut, but those are things that have to be have to be studied. These ideas of the Mashiach Ben Yosef and Mashiach Ben David, but it's clear like that these ideas like I don't even like to talk about them because the truth is that these ideas are really are connected to our life and really are connected to our Toda'ah. How would you say Toda'ah in English? How we awareness. perceive our awareness, our awareness and our perception of our reality. Um, and that's what has to change uh, right now. And these are just, these ideas are just tools. They're conceptual tools that allow us to discuss things that we're experiencing, we're understanding, we're perceiving. And the danger of using them is like, I don't want people to hear them and to think that they're religious ideas. They're not mm. religious ideas. These are concepts. These are just concepts. Like we say about Yosef, Mashiach ben Yosef, David. These are concepts that exist because our culture has been in existence for so many thousands of years and has experienced so many things and has had such a unique um, uh, growth and contact with all the different civilizations um, that in order for us to understand ourselves and to know who we are, we have to be able to start to think through our own conceptualization. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we need to use our own framework for understanding ourselves. Right. And, and, and one of the great things that I saw really the last year is that even though I and others talked in these terms for many, many years, uh, you never heard it. Like the people who we say are... Shevet Yosef, the tribe of Yosef, never used these terms, and then all of a sudden we see them using them mm -hmm. because it just fits. Mm -hmm. It just fits, and you cannot escape the fact that if it, you know right. it's, what it reminds me of 
at the when the state of Israel was established uh, before when the Zionism the Zionism started before, there was an argument about whether we should use Hebrew or speak German or Yiddish uh, and there was an argument and one of the claims of Nomasim Gershom Sholem was that he was totally opposed was totally opposed to the idea of the new Jewish settlement in the land of Israel speaking Hebrew. And he said, you guys don't understand. You don't understand that the language itself is messianic. The language itself is going to bring with it the concepts and the messianic concepts that we're trying to escape. And it's going to come in through the back door. And there's no way to escape it because that's the language. And he was right. He was right. Uh, and now the only question is, are we going to use those concepts to try to reach the next stage of our development? And with this war, one of the things that we see is that, that especially when we're, we're challenged by something so great, uh, we see that a lot of people who didn't look deeply into our own culture and civilization are now all of a sudden looking into it because, because something didn't work in the Western conception that they had. And it, it struck them in the face, it slapped them in the face. There's something that's not working in this conception of man. We gave them everything. We, we, we pulled out and we, we gave them money and we gave them this and we gave them that. Yeah, maybe you can still argue, okay, there was still poverty and there was still maybe, a, you know, like there's all, all different types of arguments. Open air made, prison. Open air or... prison and so forth. Whether it's true or not true, but it doesn't matter. The fact that people were coming, willing to come in and slaughter women and children and babies means that there's something else over there. There's something else that's happening there. And that's what people are trying to realize. But, but we need to be careful not to just fall into the trap of this like orientalist lens of saying, well, they're just their conception of man is problematic or their version of being human is problematic. And like we have to if they're not going to westernize, we have to put a wall up so that we're safe from them. I'll tell you where it comes out from my, my, in my perspective. I thought there's there was something that really a change in the tide of perception here. And then I started to get worried. When did I think there was a change? When people started to say, okay, we have to go and have revenge and we have to go and fight them. When did I become worried when they said, what are we fighting? The combatants. What we're, fi what we're fighting against is the combatants. And when I hear that, I become worried. Why? Because the combatants are just the, the spearhead. What you're actually fighting against is a societal concept. Islam has to be a completion of the mission of the Jewish people. In other words, and this, I don't know if we want to get into it now or not, but if you look at, for example, the archetype of the father of the Jews, Yitzchak, Isaac, and the archetype, and the father of the, 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 the Arab world is Ishmael. And Ishmael was actually the first son of Abraham. And Abraham, when he was told that Yitzchak was going to be born. He said, "No, Lu to Hashem." He said, "No, I want Ishmael to live. I want. I like Ishmael will will complete my mission, my mission of bringing everyone to the knowledge of one God and to the brotherhood of humanity." And the answer there, and we look at, we really should look in the verses. But the answer that Hashem gives to Abraham, He says, "Okay, I heard you, and now I'm going to divide up the mission. Half of the mission is going to go to Ishmael, and half of the mission is going to Yitzchak. The mission that's going to Yitzchak is that he has to create a Mamlech Kohanim Vagoy Kadosh. He has to have a holy nation, a kingdom of priests in the land of Israel. That is his mission. The national mission. The national mission. And the mission of Ishmael is that he shall spread off across the entire world. And he will be the one that will bring the knowledge of the of, of, uh, oneness of one God to all of men. So we as a Jewish people can accept that. 
And the question is, can Islam accept that or not? If they can't accept them, they want to fight against us, then they're our enemies. And then we're going to have to fight against them. But at the very least, we should give them the opportunity to accept right. it. The problem is that we have not developed yet the path for it to be offered as an option. Even. Because we don't know ourselves. Because all we can offer right now is Western-style democracy. And then, obviously, when that's what the people hear and they see, uh, then they'll, they'll reject that. First of all, because they see the, the faults in it, number one. And there are real faults in it. Uh, it's not compatible to the idea of man that exists in the Middle East, which is more of a collectivist idea, a less materialistic idea, a more spiritual idea. Okay, it works for Europeans. It doesn't work for peoples of the Middle East. And so they see through it and they see the Jews as representing like, and, that, and that's the big question in this whole battle. Place. Are we just the spear front for Western civilization against the savage Middle East, or are we, and we have to fight against them, we have no choice. We have to fight for our survival and for our place here. And for our honor and for our rightful place mm -hmm. to be, when we talk about the brotherhood of humanity, we have to remember what is Israel? Israel is Bechuri. We're the firstborn. And the firstborn has an obligation. First of all, the firstborn, all the time, he gets punished more, the firstborn. He has more eyes on him, the firstborn. He has higher expectations. He falls more, the firstborn. But he also has a role that he should be the teacher. Like all the the idea of the Levites taking the, the role of the of the teachers, though it's only a replacement of what was supposed to be is that the firstborn of each family was supposed to be the one who, who teaches the family. And that's the role of, and that's what it says in Bereshit, Bereshit, for Reshit, what's Reshit? Israel. Israel is Reshit, in other words, is the firstborn of all of the sons, all of the peoples of the earth are the sons of God, but the people of Israel are the firstborn, and we have a specific role, and we also suffer more because of that, and we're also punished more because of that, but we also have a, a greater role to play to be a, an example for the rest of the nations, and that's where we have to be. We have to be able to stand alone, and we have to be able to present something that's different, just like we brought to the world, the idea of Shabbat, of a Sabbath, the idea of a Shemitah. We have many ideas that we've brought to the world that, that the world doesn't have, and we're going to have to bring a new idea of, of a political society to the world that the world has not yet seen, and we're going to do it whether we like it or not, and the realities, the geopolitical realities are forcing us in that direction. That's why, in the end, even with all of the horrible things that, that took place, and, and the fact that we really might get stuck in this war and it might not end the way we want it to but at least we're touching upon we're touching upon the challenges the real challenges that are taking place the real challenges being number one the unification of jewish society here the brotherly love that has to take place even though we're all different there's haredim and there's chilonim and there's faradim and ashkenazim we're going to realize that if we don't have a map for brotherly love for the other nations of the world that we don't have any way out of this war we're going to have to realize that the concept of man that is real is not the concept of man that was taught in the universities in the West, that that conception only brings pain and misunderstanding. And the only ways we're going to be able to express these terms is in, in our traditional uh, our literature, in our traditional stories that actually do know how to express all of these ideas in a way that the West doesn't know how, how to express them. Uh, and then we're going to be able to stand up and lead the world and do for the world what has to be done. Right now, we have 
an evil that we have to eradicate. We have revenge that has to take place, but we have to have a vision for the future and always direct our actions towards building that greater vision. Otherwise, we're just going to be going over the same things over and over and over again. If on a deeper level, like we spoke before about the tribes of Israel and, and different kind of uh, archetypes in the Torah, like, you know, just to, to make it clear, all these figures existed. There was a person named Avraham, there was a person named Esav, Yosef, Yehuda, etc. But they also represent uh, spiritual forces in the universe that shine into our world in every generation through different people or nations or civilizations. Uh, and when we look at the Torah, the, the Torah is nivoah, the Torah is prophecy. It's not like Nostradamus. It's not telling us about some future event in the year or so and so, this is going to happen. The Torah is nivoah in that it's telling us about the back end of the universe. And if we can understand these spiritual forces, we can understand what's going on in, in our time as well. So Palestinian identity, for example, the issue is not necessarily the humans. The issue is like the spiritual back end, this force of Pileshet that shines into the world as a nation that tries to push back against our sovereignty here, that tries to prevent us from possessing the land. And that forces us to figure out our identity, because if there are no Palestinians in this country, I don't know what Israel would look like today, like 75 years into statehood. And when you think about Palestinian society, what really makes them Palestinians? What do they share as a group? They share an experience of victimhood at the hands of the Zionists. That's what makes them Palestinians. So if we're looking to defeat the, the spiritual back end, not necessarily the humans in this world that we call Palestinians, but really the spiritual back end, this force shining into the world, perhaps that requires us to win over the society to us and figure out how we can behave differently. Well, in a way. well we need to have uh, uh, an idea for the day after. Like, uh, we have to go to war right now. We have mm -hmm. to destroy it because our honor has been desecrated. And there's a mitzvah of vengeance. Our, our people, our women and children were slaughtered like animals. Uh, and um, that can't be that can't be looked over. That would, has to be responded to. Would you say there's a gvul with zero? Like meaning at what point do we say we've taken revenge? At, at this point, would you say we've taken sufficient revenge? Has our honor been restored? No, no, not at all. No? Not at all, no. No. I don't think our honor has been restored. We've killed all. more of them than they killed yeah, of right. us. Yeah, so that's exactly not the gauge. That has nothing to do with it. So how, how do mean, we gauge it? there's two ways. One is to, uh, uh, I mean, uh, you know, I heard uh, someone say, and, and, and he, he's right, no matter what we do, if there's one guy, even one guy left, who can stand up and, and raise a flag of, uh, of uh, Hamas after and uh, claim that he's still alive and that he has victory, then, then we haven't won. So I heard that claim. Uh, and there's something to that. You know, we, we spoke before about Yosef being the part of Israel that can be like Esav, that can defeat Esav. You brought Rashi. Rashi says that when Yosef is born, Yaakov knows he can go home. Uh, also, the prophet Ovadia, who is actually a biological descendant of Esav, uh, comes and, and tells us that Yosef is the flame, like Yaakov is the fire, Esav is the straw, Yosef is the flame. Uh, but according to the most, uh, at least the most, widely accepted Midrash regarding how Esav is killed, it's not someone from the tribe of Yosef, it's not someone from Ephraim or Menashe, it's actually Chushim Ben Dan, 
Dan being the tribe that is the extreme expression of Yosef. If I were to identify the tribe of Dan today in Israeli society, I would say it's the Jews who vote for the Palestinian parties or the Jews in the diaspora who are involved in BDS and, and movements like that. It's interesting that it's actually not Yosef or someone from Yosef, but Dan that tears down Esav. And if you really look at, um, if you look at the world today and you look at the fact that uh, Esav, the, the kingdom of Esav, the civilization of Esav, the fourth empire, as our sages would call it, you know, we call it Western civilization, liberal ideology, the capitalist system, who is really fighting against these things most actively, it's the Jews on the left, the same Jews who would be involved in pro-Palestinian movements, in uh, anti-imperialist movements, they're the ones who are actively working to tear down the kingdom of Edom. Okay, I think, I think there's something there's something to that. Also, uh, in the end, in the end, uh, you know, the fact that Esav was killed uh, and his head was chopped off, and his head is in Ma'at Machpelah, there's also something to be said about that. Have you seen it? I haven't seen it. I, I see the place where there's a sign that says that this is where his head is. Although, you know, that the Arabs here, not far from here, they say that there's the Kever Esav here as well. They think that he, he was buried here. The rest of them. I don't know. They, they, don't, they don't know if it was the rest of them or not, but that, that, that's their tradition. Uh, in the end, in Esav also, and, and this, this, you know, the, the fact that, that, and with all, of these, with all of these ideas, there's the idea of the destruction, but there's also the idea of the repentance and the tshuva and the returning. In other words, there's the correction. There's a correction of Esav. There are three primary um, primary paths uh, that we call in, of the division of the mitzvot, as it were. There's what's called ben adam lemakom, ben adam lechaverov, ben adam laatzmo. Okay. In other words, a person has to correct himself in his the way between himself and between God. Where things like there's things like uh, keeping kosher, things about like rituals and so forth between himself and man, okay, and between man and himself. In other words, you have to correct himself. And in each one of these three paths, there's the greatest sin, as it were. And those three greatest sins are avodazara, right? Idol worship. Idol worshiper between man and, and God. Like that's the worst possible thing that a person could do. The worst possible thing that a person could do to another human being is what? Murder. Murder. That's shfichut damim. And the worst possible thing that a person can do to himself is what? Sexual immorality. Right? That, in other words, it uh, could, sexual immorality. Sexual immorality. Like, I mean, it could all be consensual. It could all, everything could be that. But you really, you've destroyed yourself. You've destroyed yourself and your family. Not me, a person. What? Not me. Not you. What do you not mean? me. You, you said you, not me. Okay. Not you in the, in the larger sense. Right? So, what the shfichut damim a murder is the hardship of Esav. And that's the blessing that he gets. You will live by your sword. Right? And in fact, we see that the Western world is what we call in, in our tradition, Din. Uh, the idea of strict judgment. That's the basic nature of the West. And how do I know it's true? Because if you go and stand in a line in Germany, what does it look like? A line. It looks like a line. It's a good line. There's clear rules. Everything's strict and clear. When the West comes in and conquers Africa or the Middle East, what they do, they don't care about any natural rivers or, or, or mountains. They draw straight lines. It's all straight lines. It's called strict judgment. That's the nature of the West. And if your nature is strict judgment, 
then you choose for yourself a religion to correct that nature. What's that? What 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 corrects strict judgment? Chesed, chesed or love, right? And so they they adopted a religion of love to correct themselves from their nature, which is din. And that's what happened in the West. The children of Ishmael, you know, it says when Hashem came to bring the Torah to the different people, he said, "What well, is Esav says, what's written in it? And he says, it says, Shfechut Damim. And they said, okay, that we can't do it. To the, to the people of Ishmael, what's written in it? And there's, there's the idea of Gilui Arayot or Gezel. In other words, Yado Bechol V'yad Kolbo. There's no borders. Everything is open. And there's great things about that. There's like Achnasat Orchim. There's uh, the hospitality, great hospitality, and so forth. But there's no borders. There's no borders. Everything's open. If your nature is that everything's open, what's mine is yours, and what's yours is mine, whether it could be theft, there could be sexual immorality, what's the religion that you choose for yourself? You choose yourself a religion that corrects corrects that. What's that religion? Islam. Islam. Deen, strict judgment. Like if you stand in the line in Jordan, it doesn't look like a line. It's a big mess. There's no, right? Like Israel. Like Israel as well, right? It's a big mess. So the like if you steal in the Christian world, what do you do? Then afterwards you say, Hail Mary, and you're forgiven, right? No, not me. Love, love, not you. And if you steal in Saudi Arabia, what happens? They cut off your hand, right? In other words, the correction of the Tumadechis, as it were, is, is a religion of strict judgment. And now the question is, what happens with, uh, what's our religion, the Jewish people? What, who are we? What's our nature? Machloket. Our, our nature is machloket. Disunity. Disunity. Infighting. Infighting, or and also creating all these strange ideologies, you know, like uh, Freud, Marx, all these all these type, types of ideologies. Spinoza. Spinoza. Okay. And our religion is a religion of Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokim Hashem Echad. That everything is really one. So there's a a movement of unity. In which our our character trait is this disunity or avodah zarah as it were, and the correction is that Hashem is one. And so when uh, when Hashem came and He offered the different peoples the Torah, and the people, children of Edom said, well, what's written in it? And, and said, okay, no, we don't want it. The people of Israel said, Ishmael said, what's written in it? We don't want it. And He came to the people of Israel, and the people of Israel said, Na'aseh v'nishma, that if you look at the words, Na'aseh is Esav, and Ishma is Ishmael, the ability to put Esav and Ishmael together, mm-hmm. but all the world together back in unity and that's the correction for Migdad Babel as, as well the, the ultimate brotherhood of all of humanity and part of that is to respect the different character traits of each of these different uh, civilizations and to have a focal point and that's what Zion is that's what Yerushalayim is that all the nations of the world the seven nations, 70 nations of the world can unite in one focal point uh, with real brotherhood and not uh, false brotherhood, which is the failed attempt of the United Nations and, and of the West. So when we have that vision, when we have that vision going forward, we're, we're going to have to be able to build that and we're going to have to be able to put out the tentacles, as it were, like to be able to to have you know a hand outstretched for the other hand to come and to grab our hand. Right now, we don't have a hand outstretched and it's not good for them and it's not good for us. So for those who don't know, Gabriel was very influential in creating the vision movement with us. A lot of the ideas we talk about on this podcast and at the magazine at visionmag.org uh, really do come from Gabriel. Uh, but in the last few years, he's come down here to the Judean desert to create something new, something very exciting. 
um, that's really blazed a trail for a lot of others in the area to kind of copy and, and replicate. It's turned into a new wave of activism, a new kind of activism. So why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about what you're doing here and, and how it works? Okay, well, you know, one, one of the things I will say when we, I, I imagine now, right now, uh, we, we have a farm, obviously. We actually have set up already two farms uh, here on the top of the Darul Goat Stream going down to En Gedi above the Judean Desert. As far as north-south, Bethlehem is northwest of us. Hebron is southwest of us. We're just in the middle between Hebron and Bethlehem on the eastern side, uh, uh, towards the east, going down into the desert. In other words, this is the high mountain range that goes from, uh, really from Hebron, Bethlehem, Yerushalayim, Bethel, uh, Shechem, uh, and we're east of that, where the watershed goes down towards the Dead Sea. Okay, so we're like at the edge of the desert, what's called Tzfar Midbar. Uh, we've set up here two farms already. The truth is that the Jews here living on this uh, in this area were living really inside of a ghetto. Like uh, before we started, uh, no one walked around, and when they walked around, they walked around with uh, weapons, and they were, I guess, afraid. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, we, we since that time set up two farms and really... Um, the Jews are living like we should naturally in these hills. Like that's what we wanted. We wanted the Jews to be able to live naturally in a natural way on these hills. And we raise sheep, and we have goats, and we have uh, we have vineyards. Uh, we had our first Rinet um, Ravai uh, this year, our first Betzir, uh, our first grape harvest this year. Uh, we have great grapes. And we have olives, and we have barley, and we plow the fields, and we also. Uh, have created structures and we've had hundreds maybe probably thousands of uh, volunteers coming through here and you've also prevented the european union from taking land away from Israel. right and there's a battle over the land here i mean the land is all um it's really like you look around you we're sitting here right now you can see there's just thousands of dunam that are open and uh, there's a unfortunately like a lot of the, the our Arab neighbors are are prompted by uh, the European Union, and they, and we know this because I, I see the signs. They like put up signs saying uh, to come and try and capture the land and to take the land. And, and what looks like benign agriculture is not really benign agriculture. It's the attempt to um, to lay the foundation for the establishment of a really a Palestinian state here on our land. And if we're not here, the land will be taken away from us. Okay. Uh, in fact, when I, when I came out here, there was an attempt to separate the Jewish town here from the Judean desert. Had it been successful, like there was an attempt by uh, an Arab uh, village not far from here, supported by the European Union and the PLO, uh, the, the Palestinian Authority, um, had they been successful, they would have basically cut us off totally from access to the Judean desert. Uh, and uh, thank God we were able to, to put an end to that. And we put an end to that by really just living here, by, by having life here, by having agriculture here. The advantage of agriculture is that you, you have no choice, whether it's, you know, uh, hot or snowing, you have to be here. Right? Like people think maybe by tourism they can they can hold on to land, but tourism only works when there's good weather and it's like the nice hours of the day. But when you have sheep, they have to eat every day and we take them out every day to pasture. And I know every every uh, rock here and every cave here, thousands of uh, dunam of land here. And and also uh, they're around me, know me, and they, they recognize that we're here and we're strong and they don't, they don't cause us trouble here. So that was the laying of the foundation. What we've done for the last, it's been six years really, 
we laid the physical foundation for these two farms and uh, and we've also done some nice things like we set up a, a pool with the kids here of the of the of the nearby town we've set up um, a visitor center and we have other things as well but right now all this is just the physical uh, infrastructure and what we have to do now is want to go and and put another layer onto this and uh, and uh, you know for me that other the next layer is something we've been trying to thinking about for some time is some kind of program where um, we would have a, a mixture of studying uh, Torah and working here as apprentices, as it were, for artisans. Like, you know, there, uh, we talk about, uh, like, uh, in the Kuza, he talks about the different levels of, of uh, being. We have the Domem, how do you say that? The rocks, rocks inanimate, inanimate objects. objects. And yeah. you have the Tzomeach. Uh, plant, life. plant life and vegetation and you have the chai the animals, animals and you have the medaber humans the humans and you have israel which is like Prophets. a nevoah right prophecy and so like along those lines we have people who can work with rocks here and and create here you can see over there like building terraces and so forth so people, so people would come and work building building with rock work and then there will be those who are more inclined to work with, like, the vineyards and the olive trees and the, the vegetation. Uh, I mean, you have people who work with the, the sheep and the goats and the boas and cows here, and that's the, that. And we also want to build the the midabel, the humanity, like, talk about the philosophy and have the, and political science and uh, and uh, so forth, and also have studies, the high-level studies of Torah. Oh, with midabel, I thought you were going to talk about uh, relations with your neighbors. As right? well, as well, right. Midabel, in other words, like, the, the that's all of the human civilization. Right. Like, that's humanity. Mm -hmm. That's the human yeah. aspects. And then there's the aspect that's, like, just uh, the special uh, Torah, the mm -hmm. nevoah. And so, um, really, all we need to get that started is just money. And we have people in place where people can already take part in this. Mm -hmm. And we just need the money to be able to pay salaries for people. And uh, we already have structures, even. Like, we, I mean, obviously, we could improve the structures, but we have structures. And then we have, we'd have students that would be able to come here and uh, get that experience for, like, uh, maybe a couple of weeks at a time or half a year at a time, whatever it might be. Okay, so how can listeners support your work? How can they support what you're doing here? There's ways to make contributions through the Gushetzion Foundation. Mm -hmm. And if someone seriously wants to help, like in a serious way, I, I would suggest them to get in contact with us. But obviously okay. I can send you a link mm -hmm. where, you know, they can even uh, give the monthly stipends in American dollars or in, the, in, in shekels and it's a tax-deductible donation. Is there a website they can go to check out the work you're doing here? Uh, there's no website, but if people want to get in touch, uh, they can get in touch with you. And mm -hmm. uh, we have many, many needs here, and we have m many, many things we would like to develop here. And there's a tremendous amount of potential. But uh, yeah, if they want to get in touch, they can get in touch through you. Gabriel Reese, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to uh, record this with me. <laughs> It's always a pleasure to come down here and see what you're doing. And it happens to be a beautiful day today. And uh, you look tired. I am tired. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, this is Yudaha Kohen Vision Movement Vision Magazine. And you are listening to the Next Stage Podcast. If anyone's interested in checking out the show notes of this episode, you can go to visionmag.org backslash the next stage 107.